Afternoon. I'm Rachel Cassandra. Welcome to Midday Magazine for Thursday, February 2nd. The head of the Alaska Department of Labor and Workforce Development unexpectedly resigned Tuesday, as reported by the Alaska Beacon Commissioner Tamika Ledbetter's resignation was announced in an email from the governor's office. The resignation was effective immediately, and Ledbetter is no longer a member of the administration, said a Dunleavy official. State legislators, including the chairs of the Senate and House Labor and Commerce Committees, said they were surprised by the announcement. Representative Jesse Sumner of Wasilla is chair of the House Labor and Commerce Committee. He said he had just spoken with Ledbetter a few days ago with no sign of an impending resignation. The statement from the governor's office did not say why Ledbetter resigned and officials from the office were unable to immediately provide a copy of her resignation letter. Kathy Munoz replaces Ledbetter as acting commissioner. She's a Republican, former state representative from Juneau, who has worked as deputy labor commissioner since 2018. Alaska's governor says he'll appeal a pending federal court ruling that threatens to shut down the southeast king salmon season. Governor Mike Dunleavy was unequivocal when answering a question from a listener during Alaska Public Media's Talk of Alaska on Tuesday. Robert Woolsey reports from Sitka. The Duval, Washington-based Wild Fish Conservancy filed suit against the National Marine Fisheries Service in U.S. District Court in 2019, arguing that a flaw in the agency's environmental analysis left a small population of endangered killer whales in Puget Sound exposed to further harm due to the interception of their primary food source, king salmon, also known as Chinook. In barest terms, the proposed remedy to correct this alleged oversight by NIMPS involves shutting down the southeast Alaska salmon troll fishery until the full impact of the Chinook harvest on southern resident killer whales can be assessed. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game intervened in support of the National Marine Fisheries Service. So did the Alaska Trollers Association. It hasn't gone well. Although a federal judge in 2020 declined to impose an injunction against the southeast troll fishery, the latest report and recommendation in the U.S. District Court of Western Washington in December 2022 leaves open the possibility that the Wild Fish Conservancy could prevail. If a judge signs off on the recommendation, trolling for king salmon in southeast might be off-limits for 10 months of the year, making the fishery uneconomic and unviable for many trollers. Although the state joined the lawsuit, it's been relatively quiet about the case. No fighting words, at least in public. That changed on Tuesday morning when Juno troller and four-decade-plus fisherman Tom Fisher posed the question directly to Governor Dunleavy on Alaska Public Media's Talk of Alaska. My question is, will the state commit all resources necessary to take this court case to a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and if necessary, the Supreme Court. Yes. Thank you. The answer is yes, because this is another example of opportunities being curtailed in Alaska. And again, I think we do uh, fisheries better than the feds did when uh, we were a territory. So the answer to that is yes. We very much appreciate the governor's conviction on pursuing this lawsuit to the end. Amy Daugherty is the director of the Alaska Trollers Association. You know, it's just so frivolous and so harmful to all of Southeast and our way of life here. So it's such good news. Daugherty says her job has changed dramatically since the Wild Fish Conservancy filed suit three years ago. 
the existential threat to Southeast trolling, which is somewhere between 700 and 800 small businesses across the region, has grown as the suit has progressed. She says the issue has not been overhyped. I think it's extremely valid. It's extremely, extremely um, justified to be very concerned about the current situation. Um, they, uh, Wildfish Conservancy has a lot more means, certainly, than the Alaska Trollers Association, and um, they seem to be applying it with absolute conviction. Um, so we are just doing everything we can. We're getting a lot of resolutions. We're getting new money every day, uh, a lot from fishermen, a lot from organizations, processors, stores even, and um, we're just hopeful that there will be some common sense brought forward through this process. It's unclear what the immediate impact of a ruling in favor of the Wild Fish Conservancy would have on Southeast trolling, given this newly re-elected governor's interest in fighting the suit to the bitter end. During the same talk of Alaska, Governor Dunleavy didn't just go to bat for trollers. He reaffirmed a commitment to the industry as a whole and to subsistence harvesters on Alaska's interior river systems, whose way of life is threatened by a still unexplained collapse of king salmon and chum runs. I would say that uh, this is priority number one when it comes to resources for this administration for the next four years. And, you know, uh, missing a, a fishing season, uh, two or three fishing seasons, has a detrimental effect, not just, as you said, on food, but also on the fact that it's difficult to pass down the ways of life and the culture if you can't bring the kids out to fish camp. And so we're going to do everything we can to turn this around because Alaska is fisheries. A final decision by the U.S. District Court of Western Washington on the December 13th report and recommendation in the case of the Wild Fish Conservancy versus the National Marine Fisheries Service at all is pending. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Petersburg's fire department is planning to offer a Community Emergency Response Team, or CERT, training this year. The program would teach residents how to support officials during a disaster or emergency. Logan Stolpe is a volunteer firefighter in Petersburg. He used to oversee CERT programs as part of his job for the Alaska State Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. He talked with KFSK about the program. The CERT program came into existence after a large earthquake in California, and the the point of the program was to get volunteers that were able to help respond and and take care of themselves and their families, um, but then be kind of like auxiliary responders to help out in a large-scale disaster where traditional first responder resources were overwhelmed and these people could help do some of the tasks that would make the response a little bit more efficient. One thing that first responders and emergency management sees in disasters is a lot of folks really want to help out, which is great, but in a disaster, unless you're donating cash, it's really hard to put people to use. So this program will help build an organizational structure and training requirement for folks so that it's a lot easier to employ them in a large-scale disaster. The first responders will know that these people have a certain amount of training. They'll have relationships with them so they know kind of what their strengths are, what type of skills they have to employ in a response. 
So what are some examples of the training that people might get in a program like this? As part of the CERT curriculum, a few things that you'll learn is basic medical disaster operations. So that's basic first aid, things like how to maintain an open airway, how to stop bleeding, some basic first aid like cleaning wounds and and types of things like that. Also, there's disaster psychology, so it goes into a little bit of how people react to disasters and how to that kind of mental first aid. There's light search and rescue as part of that as well, how to identify a building that might be compromised in some way and too risky to go in, or uh, you know how to look for signs that there are people in there, how to effectively search a building to make sure that you're covering all the area. Fire safety is one of those, so recognizing what level of fire that you're equipped to fight and getting um, some training and experience with uh, using fire extinguishers and knowing how to properly use them. Do you know anything about, in Petersburg, what the requirements of this course would be? Yeah, so the CERT training is about 24 hours long. One kind of normal way to do that is over three days, uh, an instructor would come down, which includes kind of a classroom setting part to it, and then also uh, skills part where you're actually doing all the things that you're talking about in the class. There are different options depending on the interest and what people's schedules are and what they want, um, because some of that classroom stuff you can do online. In a disaster or an emergency, what kinds of tasks would people be able to help with? There's been a a few pretty successful CERT teams around the state. Fairbanks, I can think, is one, uh, and then also Willow is another one that have been, have really active CERT teams. A couple of the things that they have done, they were active in the COVID disaster emergency, helping set up and take down testing sites and doing traffic control for that. The Fairbanks team was very active, and I think the Willow team was also very active during wildfires, and they're helping do traffic control, setting up. And, you know, it's always hard to tell during a disaster what exactly is going to happen, but things that I could imagine being useful in Petersburg is, say, there's, like, a large landslide or something like that, and there's need for some type of warming shelter. CERT members could help staff that. Also, the teams, as kind of just regular activities, have been... They'll get involved in different community events that are not necessarily disasters, but, you know, you could help out at, say, the Lop the Loop at Fourth of July. Maybe you could have a stand handing out water or whatever to racers or different kind of activities like that. That was volunteer firefighter Logan Stolpe talking with KFSK about training a Petersburg Community Emergency Response Team. There will be an information session on February 26th at 4 p.m. in Assembly Chambers and via Zoom. For details, call the Fire Hall at 907-772-3355, and KFSK's community calendar will have that Zoom link. A federal appeals court has affirmed Metlakatla tribal members' right to fish in their traditional waters without state permits. But a new opinion issued Tuesday by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals leaves open the question of where exactly those traditional fishing grounds are. Eric Stone reports from Ketchikan. Metlakantla Mayor Albert Smith welcomed the news. First of all, woo! <laughs> it's, it's something that we, uh, we've been fighting for a long time. So we are extremely pleased to know that the Ninth Circuit so strongly supported our fishing rights. 
Metlake Atlas Tribal Government sued Governor Mike Dunleavy and other state officials in 2020. The tribe asserted that the 1891 federal law that created the Annette Islands Reserve, the only reservation in Alaska, guaranteed the tribe fishing rights throughout much of the southern panhandle. Congress passed the 19th century law after members of the tribe relocated from their previous home in Metlakatla, British Columbia, at the invitation of President Grover Cleveland. Senior U.S. District Court Judge John Sedwick rejected the tribe's claim and dismissed the case the following year. Metlakatla appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled in favor of the tribe last year in a 28-page decision. The opinion said that Congress guaranteed Metlakatla's tribal members the right to fish in their traditional waters, despite the state's limited entry program, which limits the number of vessels targeting particular species of fish. The Ninth Circuit's three-judge panel initially ruled that Metlakatla tribal members had the right to fish in Districts 1 and 2, as laid out by the State Department of Fish and Game. Those encompass areas around Ketchikan's Revilla Gagato Island and the southeastern shore of Prince of Wales Island. Smith, Metlakatla's mayor, says the tribe has records of its members bringing back fish from as far as the Aleutian chain, but he acknowledges that the tribe's fishermen largely harvested from waters within a day's travel of the reserve at the southeastern tip of the state. Time of Memorial, we've been fishing uh, uh, all of those districts one and two, all the way down to you know the border. But the new opinion notes that the state of Alaska disputes the extent of the tribe's historical fishing grounds. It'll be up to the lower court to determine just how far the tribe's fishermen should be allowed to go. In its new order, the court also denied a request from the state of Alaska to reconsider its decision or put it before a larger Ninth Circuit panel. Alaska Department of Law spokesperson Patty Sullivan said in a statement that the Ninth Circuit panel, quote, continues to fundamentally misunderstand the history and legal framework in this case. She said the court should have sent the case back to the lower court for further arguments on the scope of the 1891 law. Sullivan said the state is reviewing the opinion and considering its next steps. Smith says Metlakantla is excited to continue with the case. But we are ready for the next phase of this case and look forward to finally and permanently restoring our community's fishing rights. The court's decision would allow tribal members to fish, quote, for personal consumption and ceremonial purposes, as well as for commercial purposes. But details of how the decision might be implemented once the case concludes remain unclear. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. For KFSK, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Coming up, local and marine weather.